reading from the book of Lamentations, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. How, desert, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who is queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The road to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer, find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. The word of the Lord. Reading from the second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit, who lives in us. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 17, starting with verse 5. 
The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The gospel of the Lord. Good to be with you all this morning. Um, there's not many things as your pastor that I would want you to know more than the fact that God is with you in pain and in weakness. I think for the Christian to be reminded consistently that when we're in struggle, when we're in pain, that God is not looking down at us from a distance, but that God is actually present with us, I, I really believe is truly transformational. When then we become a people who are with others in pain, it is also transformational. We become the body of Christ. We become that sacramental presence for those who are hurting in our world. Right smack in the middle of the Old Testament, we have this book called Lamentations. And it is a lament. I mean, it's named properly. <laughs> it's a lament. It's a cry for the state of God's people, where God's people find themselves. So even before they're taken into exile, which is what this book is mourning, God's people, Israel and Judah, have been struggling against God. And they've gone through this period um, of kind of reforms and change with the King Josiah, but then this final spiral of the death of what these people are experiencing happens in about 609 with the death of King Josiah. And after he had tried to kind of ward off religious apostasy and all those kind of things, they had had this period where they weren't ruled by any oppressors. God's favor was on them for this very short period of time. But then when he was killed on the battlefield, Judah became part of a power play between two superpowers in the world. So there was Egypt and Babylon, and they kept kind of like moving Judah back and forth. And each of them would kind of rule over Judah for a period of time. And then ultimately, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem happened in 587 or 586. So this big destruction happens, and the city of Jerusalem is just destroyed. And Lamentations is a lament of that. So in this chapter that we read, God's people are personified as a widow. A widow, and there's no one there to comfort her. So Lady Zion or Lady Jerusalem, you could say, speaks and calls on God to look upon her fate. In the first few verses, we see what's happened. So Jerusalem and her temple have been destroyed. The Babylonian officials who destroyed the city led all except for the poorest people into exile in Babylon and other places. And during the siege, all of Israel's friends, all the other nations they thought were her friends, deserted her and her enemies are now mocking her. Her foes are now her masters, so the people she was once again are now ruling over her. And the people who remain in Jerusalem are in dire straits. There's just nowhere to turn. Their feasts, their religious festivals are all a thing of the past. They aren't a thing of the present anymore, and there's weeping and there's groaning. And then verse 6 says this. It says that her leaders, likely King Zedekiah at this point, quote, are like deer that find no pasture. 
In weakness they have fled before the pursuer and all those around him who fled the doomed city like frightened deer. So even the leaders are running away. They don't even know where to go. They don't know what's going on. If we look in history, we see that this time was devastating. It led to famine and thirst and cannibalism and rape and slaughter. And the author of Lamentations a couple times in the book wonders, would have been better if we just all were wiped out, if we all died? Would that be a better option? But then beyond the physical suffering itself was the question of, are we still God's people? Like God has shown favor on us. Like our whole identity is God heard our cry in slavery and delivered us and set us free and led us to the promised land. And we entered into the promised land and God's been faithful to us over and over again. Is that all gone now? Like, is it over? Does God even hear our cry? Their whole identity has been wiped away. Has God given up on us? So Lamentations is this lament. God, where are you? Like, how is this happening? And I want to suggest that lament is such an important but often neglected part of Christian prayer. Lament is prayer when things are just senseless. They just don't make sense anymore. And I want to suggest it's so important for us to know that we can name our pain that pain can be named, that we can cry out in anger and even anger to God. This is part of the Christian tradition. There's this collection of stories from the rabbis called the Hasidic Tales. It's really interesting. And it includes the story of this rabbi of Jerusalem who was approached by a guy who had a crisis of faith. And he's angry, he's mad, and he's like mad at all of the leaders and all the structures of religion. He's having a crisis of faith. We know people like this, don't we? This is experience many of us has, have had. And so he comes with this crisis of faith to the rabbi in Jerusalem. And whatever the rabbi says that just attempts to quell his concerns or to explain away his concerns, the man just dismisses. So the rabbi finally restrained himself and he just listened to the man for hours. Finally, he said to the man one question, why are you so angry with God? Well, the question stunned the guy. He hadn't said anything about God, being angry with God. So he grew really quiet and he looked to the rabbi and he said, all my life I have been so afraid to express my anger to God that I have always directed my anger at people who are connected with God. But until this moment, I did not understand this. The rabbi then led the man to the Wailing Wall, which are the ruins of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple. The rabbi instructed the man to express all the anger he felt towards God. So for more than an hour, the man struck the wall with his hands and screamed his heart out. And after that, he began to cry and he couldn't stop crying and his sobs turned to prayer. And the tale says, and that is how the rabbi taught him to pray. Lament is important. Naming our anger, naming our fears, naming our sadness is such an important part of prayer and knowing that God can handle it. Now, lament is not just catharsis. It's not just getting out our feelings. I got to get it out. Lament is prayer. It is the meaningful practice of expressing pain and anger, trusting God with our real feelings and our real pain. And we can do this because we know our God also laments. God grieves when his people turn from him. In Christ, God stepped into our world and grieved at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. You know, the shortest 
verse in all the Bible. When your Sunday school teacher said, somebody quote a verse for me as quickly as you can, and you knew that you could step up and say, Jesus wept. (laughs) Um, But Jesus cried at the tomb of his friend. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning within us as we ourselves groan with the pain of the whole creation. So as Christians, we're not to explain suffering. We're to enter it. And the Spirit laments with us. Lament with the Spirit, then what it does is when we lament with the Spirit, the Spirit forms us as a people who grieve with the world. And that opens up the door to all kinds of possibilities. It opens up the door to healing. Now, some lamentations don't apply to us at the given moment. There's going to be times even corporately as a church where we pray a lament and you'll walk in, maybe it's Lent or something, and you're going, I don't really feel real lamenty today. Like, I feel pretty happy. I feel like things are pretty good. And it may be difficult to pray. But those prayers that we pray may not be perfect for you in that moment, but they're perfect prayers for other Christians who are suffering. Lament is not just for me. That's why we pray the prayers of the people. I may not be struggling today. And on a good day, maybe even none of my close friends or family are really struggling. But when I lament, I'm standing in solidarity with my suffering neighbor. I'll be honest, as we look at the church today, by and large, it's the black church in America that does this better than many of our traditions. There's a deeper understanding of how we wrestle with Scripture, and we do wrestle with Scripture. As we come to church each week, my hope is as we gather, we are wrestling with the Scriptures. If we leave on a Sunday and we've got a nice little bow and we feel like we knew what all those Scriptures meant really, really well, we've probably missed it. We're supposed to wrestle with the Scriptures. So in the black church, there's this sense of how are we to go to God with our pain and with the things that don't make sense? Esau Macaulay writes, there is no bigger rebellion or miracle in the history of these United States than that of the black Christians who saw in the very book used to justify their oppression a testimony to a God who disagreed. It's no coincidence this week that our psalm, so we're given a psalm each week, and our psalm for this week is actually from Lamentations. So it's not even from the book of Psalms, it's from Lamentations. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26. And it's one of the only moments of expressed hope in the entire book of Lamentations. Lamentations is mostly a lament, a cry, things are not right. And then in Lamentations 3, 19 through 26, there's an expression of hope. And when we grieve, when we lament as Christians, we do so as a people of hope. Part of the passage says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. One of the things I love about this is it's not hope that it, it is saying no. And, and look at this. I call to mind and I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. We experience pain, but it's not the end. We're not consumed. We're not done for because his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Well, that means we're going to endure night, right? I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. It involves waiting. In our epistle reading today, Paul is writing to Timothy. We get the sense Timothy is afraid, and he's timid, right? 
it might be related to his youth. So Timothy's young, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's evangelizing, he's discipling. And honestly, it's probably better when young ministers are timid versus when they're too confident. (laughs) Um, Paul indicates, though, that there is a certain kind of confidence that comes from being a Christian. So there's a humility, but it's not a I know better. It's a the Spirit knows better. So there's a confidence that comes from that. There's a confidence that comes from being found, from being rescued, and the desire for others to experience that liberation. And it's the confidence that comes from truly being part of a family, the family of God. So Paul acknowledges that Timothy has sincere faith. This faith lived in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We see that in verse 5. So Timothy is blessed that he has a grandmother who has faith, and then he has a mom who has faith. It's wonderful. Now notice, Paul doesn't mention any of the male figures in Timothy's life. Luke tells us in Acts that Timothy's father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. So we might presume from that that his father was an unbeliever. But Timothy's mother, Eunice, was a believing Jewess who became a Christian. And his grandmother somehow at some point became converted as well. They may have even nourished him from the Old Testament scripture before their conversion. So he's part of this family, this tradition of God's people. And in light of the story, Paul tells Timothy there are three ways that the spirit is contrary to fear. So he's afraid, he's timid, he's he's not sure what to do. And Paul says there are three ways in which the the spirit is uh, contrary to this fear. In fact, I always remember when I read this, the children's church song that I learned that was, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Anybody else? No, nobody else. Okay, that's just me. That's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Um, but the first thing is he's given unto us a spirit of power, okay? A spirit of power. Now, in our world, when we hear power, we get suspicious. Um, power can have a devastating effect, and most of us know this, right? But power is necessary. It's inevitable. Power is necessary to defend the weak and the vulnerable, to give a sense of direction in the world. Christians, though, need to be ever so conscious of power. For the Christian, power always means leading others in a way that is good and right. It means speaking words of wisdom which draw people and bring healing to broken situations. The spirit that lives in us is a spirit of power. And notice this, immediately after that, Paul follows up this idea of power with love. So it's a spirit of power and it's a spirit of love because power that's not rooted in love is dangerous. The same spirit who pours out love and who pours out power also gives Christian leaders self-discipline or prudence or a sound mind. So they must be able to avoid distractions, to think clearly and effectively as to what needs to be done and how to do it. I don't know about you, but it is so easy in life to just get overwhelmed. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I'm sure we all have this swampy feeling (laughs) where it just feels hard to cut through all of the noise and the mess of life to make the next right step, to make the next decision that we need to make. Well, Paul reminds Timothy that the spirit which lives in him is a spirit of a sound mind and of self-discipline. It's a spirit of wisdom. But notice this. He says this as a reminder, not as a condemnation. So he is not saying, Timothy, stop being so overwhelmed. Have a sound mind. No, because that never works. <laughs> you ever tried to do that with somebody that's overwhelmed? Say, say, no, just stop being overwhelmed. Just do this differently. No, that's not helpful. 
He reminds him, no, there is a spirit who's given him a sound mind. So he's really calling him not to do better, but to trust. That there's something beyond himself. There's some power outside of his capacity in which he can trust. And I want to say, God knows our struggle. It is easy for us to throw our hands up and not do anything because we're paralyzed by fear. And God's loving reminder to us is not, you got this. It's, no, I got this. You can trust in me. You can trust in something beyond yourself. So do not be afraid, Paul says. And then he says, don't be ashamed, verse 8. I think we all have had some fear of being ashamed in public at different times. There's that recurring nightmare where you, you were in school and you forgot today was the due date for your senior paper, right? That panic. Or you show up to a party where you thought jeans and t-shirt were appropriate, but it's actually formal, right? Of course, those are all small shames. They're, they're not even, though they're difficult, they're not ruining. Well, Paul is writing this from prison. He's at the lowest place in society. He's a criminal who's been put in prison. He's at the lowest point of his shame. There's not much lower to go. And shame was a big deal in this culture. It was an intentional tool that was used by the Roman Empire um, and is used by all oppressive regimes. In fact, Paul pokes at the empire here with his language. He says in verse 10, God has revealed our savior, King Jesus. Well, the word revealed or appearing is emperor language. Caesar was the one who appeared, the one who was revealed with strong and powerful and royal robes. But Jesus, Paul says, is the true rescuer of the world the true one who's been revealed, the deliverer of the world. And the ultimate event that reveals Jesus this way is the resurrection. Why? Because the final tool of shame that was used by all cultures and is used by all cultures and emperors today, all kings, the last tool of shame to show, hey, we're in charge, you're not in charge. The last tool of shame was death and is death. This was such an important element of the crucifixion is it's not just that Jesus felt severe physical pain, which he did, and that's important, but crucifixion was the public shaming of a person, saying, you lost, you are nothing. Paul tells Timothy, basically, the worst they can do is kill you. That's the worst they can do. It's the worst the powers of the world could ever do to you because that's all they have. But in Jesus God has shown that death doesn't have the final word. It's not the end of the story. So you don't have to fear death in the same way. So while he stands in prison, even Paul's friends would be tempted to distance themselves from him, to be ashamed of him, to turn away from him, and therefore to be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul says to Timothy, don't worry about other people. Do what you're supposed to do. Suffer for the gospel. Jesus shows us the way of life through suffering, not through avoiding it. You've been saved. You've been rescued. God's power doesn't look like earthly power, but it actually overrides all earthly power. So what might it be for us to look at the shame that we experience in our lives in this context? What is it that we're afraid of today? What is it that we feel shamed of today? What is the embarrassment that we've experienced? To be, are we afraid of being seen as something that we're not? 
Well, the question here that Paul raises is what's the worst they can do? What's the worst the powers of shame could do to us? You don't need to be ashamed. The spirit lives in you and the resurrection is stronger than any of our fears and any of our shame. Our gospel reading, I have to admit, is it's tricky. We've been given a lot of tricky ones lately. <laughs> and this is what I love about the lectionary, and I think it's so important about this calendar of readings that we follow along with the church, is I don't get to come in and pick my favorite verses and just preach on those over and over again. <laughs> that we get some really hard ones and some ones that are challenging for us. Well, in the verses that fall right before our gospel reading, Jesus is telling his disciples to forgive the brother who sins against you. But not just to forgive him, to forgive repeatedly over and over again. Well, the disciples understand this is really hard and this will require more of them than what they really have because forgiving is really hard. So what they say is they say, give us more faith. And that's the beginning of our reading today. So if we read it without remembering that it's about forgiveness, then we might miss something. But they say, Lord, give us more faith or increase our faith. But faith is not something we can like have an amount of. It's not something we possess, we hold on to it. And it's not even something we get more of or we get better at. Faith is really just clinging on to something outside of ourselves. It's trusting. It's trusting in the one who is what we are not and who has what we do not have. So Jesus says it only requires faith as small as a mustard seed to do impossible things. The mustard seed was used in rabbinic writings to refer to the smallest of all things. And Augustine writes, a mustard seed looks small. Nothing is less noteworthy to the sight, but nothing is stronger to the taste. What does that signify but the very great furor and inner strength of the faith of the church? So the idea of a mustard seed, and we see it in Matthew's gospel as well, is it, it speaks of something really, really small that will one day grow. So something that has kind of power within it. It's so, so small. It, it, it's not really accomplishing much at the moment, but it's hidden and it will one day grow into something. It speaks of patience and of slowness. One of the great themes in Jesus's parables is the power of the small and seemingly insignificant things. So over and over again, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The kingdom is revealed in small things because it will one day be revealed. So the goal in, in terms of faith is not to get more of it, but to receive it. The problem is sometimes we say, all you need is faith. So we say that. So just give us more faith. I was taught by some well-meaning people, you're never saved by your works. You're only saved by faith, which is true, of course. But then I need to make sure I could muster up enough faith to trust in God. So faith became a work. <laughs> that I worked so hard at having more faith that it was as if I was earning God's love or acceptance or whatever by my faith. I remember as a kid when, when they would say, you just need more faith. You just need more faith. I remember for some reason I needed to like go in the corner and like clench my knuckles and just have more faith. <laughs> but that's a work. That's an effort of something. Faith is trust. It's rest. It's recognizing there's something outside of me that is bigger and better. So I prefer the centurion who said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I trust in you, God, but I, I, I need something outside of myself. In other words, faith is not about me. It's not about how much I have or how strong I am. 
faith is about God. Faith is a powerful thing, but we have to remember its source and its essence. And yet, should say it again, faith is a powerful thing. God is able to accomplish things beyond my imagination. God can pull the deeply rooted mulberry tree up from its roots and plant it in the sea, a place where it can't establish a root system because God can do things beyond my imagination. I grew up in the charismatic tradition of Christianity and I'm very thankful for so much of that, but we tended to read this passage as God can do big miracles. And of course that's true. Of course that's right. But remember the context. Why did the disciples ask for more faith? Because they needed to know how to forgive people over and over again. So the point here is that when I trust in God, things outside of my imagination are possible, and that includes the incredibly challenging task of forgiving other people when I've been wronged. Verses 7 through 10 then tell a story of a master and a slave. In this culture, a slave would never think about eating with his master. In our world, of course, this metaphor is deeply problematic. Um, Our tendency then when we read this is to soften the metaphor. But in order to really see the full extent of what Jesus is saying, we can't run away from it. The importance here is to establish nothing we could do could ever cause us to earn our place at God's table. We can't earn it. We can't do enough work. We can't put in enough effort to earn a seat at God's table. A servant, by serving, doesn't earn the right to sit with the master. A key line is in verse 9. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So in other words, there are no amount of works, no amount of worship or praise that that will ever allow us to earn our place at God's table. But let's think about that for a minute. Do we want God to constantly thank us for the good we do for him? Is that what we want? In other words, do we want God to need us? Do we want God to be dependent on us? I'd say no. God doesn't need our good works. God doesn't need the good things that we do. Martin Luther once said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. God isn't dependent on us to work in the world. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't smile on the good works which emerge from Christian community. I think that's completely true. But he's not dependent on them. God is free. Now, think about this. So some read this and then go, yeah, see, so God is a master, and you just need to simply obey him without thanks. That's the point of this whole thing. So just do what you're supposed to do, and God will be your master and move on from there. But all over the place in the New Testament, God subverts and breaks the whole concept of slave and master. That happens all throughout. So earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus has told this story of himself as the master. And in a world where servants never sit with masters, Jesus says he's going to do that. He's going to sit with you, uh, chapter 12, verse 37. And then he says he will dress himself to serve and will come and wait on them. This is not because he's coerced by good works because we've worked really, really hard for him or our right worship. It's not because he needs our work. It's simply because God's free choice to give his life and to invite us into the divine life. So chapter 10 of our passage today, Jesus says, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants 
we have only done our duty. The term unworthy is sometimes translated useless. And this may sound harsh at first glance. We read this and we go, so I'm supposed to just work for God. (laughs) And then at the end of the day, I'm supposed to say, I've done my job, but I'm just a useless servant. It seems harsh until we remember the whole call of a disciple is to lay down all the ways that we think we've earned who we are. All of the works that we've done to try to achieve a certain status. That's the call of the disciple. All the things that we think made us useful or worthy. In short, the call of the disciple is die to self. And there's something incredibly liberating in uselessness. The tax collectors understood this. They knew their need for God and yet also caught a glimpse of the God who was calling them in the midst of their weakness, not because of what they had done for him, but because who he's created them to be, that he loves them. At times, the Pharisees, by contrast, so the tax collectors get it. They see their own uselessness and they trust. And at certain times, the Pharisees are blinded to their weakness. And therefore, because they're blinded to their weakness, they're blinded to grace. So just in closing here, The question for us today is what are we going to do with our weakness? What are we going to do with our pain, with our shame? We're all faced with this. The world is not as we thought it would be. There are so many things in our world that cause us to question and we go, why is this happening? On top of that, we find ourselves, it's not just a problem out there with the world, we find ourselves with so many insecurities and shameful places and worried about what others will think of us. And then we want to be a part of the solution. How do I fix this? How do I make it right? But we also know, I can't make it right. I'm not part of that. I can't, I, I can't accomplish that task. And I wonder if there's any place in your life you've felt that before, or if this is alien to you, these thinking. Over and over again today, we hear that the answer is not to be found in ourselves. As we lament, we don't have to figure it all out. But in our lament, we can trust in the steadfast love of God. As we feel fear or shame, we can trust that God has given us a spirit greater than anything the world can throw at us. You are a Christian. It means you're part of a family and a story. And Jesus has risen from the dead. I'll say it again. I said it a few weeks ago, but Leslie Newbegin, um, he said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. <laughs> and the hope there is saying, I'm not optimistic that I'm going to fix the world or a bunch of us are going to get together and fix the world. I'm also not pessimistic that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that's changed everything. You are part of a family and a story. You have a power rooted in love and a sound mind. And Jesus reminds us, this is not about how much faith we have. You're not called to be super Christian. You're called to trust in the God who can empower you to do exactly what you need to do. So may we lament the brokenness of our world and our lives. May we remember our story and the spirit who lives in us. May we rest in the arms of the God who is able to do more than anything we can imagine. Amen.